This podcast is a production of the Johns Hopkins University Press. To learn more, please visit press.jhu.edu slash journals. Thank you for tuning in to this Johns Hopkins University Press podcast. My name is Brian Shea, and I am the Public Relations and Advertising Coordinator in the Journals Division. The journal Theory and Event, an online publication, recently released a special issue focused on the death of Michael Brown and the situation in Ferguson, Missouri. Guest editor Melvin Rogers from UCLA joined us to talk about this special issue. Thanks for joining me, Melvin. So tell me, how did you get involved with this special issue? Um, well, well, Brian, thanks for uh, uh, interviewing me. Um, yeah, I was asked uh, by uh, my colleague in the political science department at UCLA, Davide uh, Pangea, to participate in putting together a volume that reflected on Ferguson and the tragedy of Mike Brown. Uh, he and his co-editor, uh, James Martell, thought I would be able to pull together a collection of, of, of folks that um, might be able to write short but punchy and intellectually uh, stimulating essays on Ferguson and the death of, of, of Mike Brown. And, you know, I should say I actually – I really was actually uh, reluctant uh, to say to say yes initially. How important is it for someone like Theory and Event, an online journal – to publish on, on things like Ferguson in such a timely manner, given how long the lag time can be in, in traditional academic publishing? I think it's very important. Uh, it's extremely important. I mean, one of the things, you know, Brian, we have to ask ourselves uh, is, you know, what are we doing as intellectuals if we are, um, uh, I guess, only concerned to speak in specialized languages to specialists? Mm-hmm. You know, it, you know. Here, I think of Cornel West and the late Edward Said. I, I, I think they both were absolutely correct. You know, the specialized languages, and, and here I mean the languages of the disciplines: political science, philosophy, sociology, history, economics, etc. You know, these languages are important for helping us to become uh, clearer about the intricacies and nuances of uh, the social world. You know, but ultimately, we need to make use of our intellectual resources to uncover, uh, unmask, and uh, illuminate the social, political, and economic practices in which we participate and to which we belong. And we must do that, I think, um, at a minimum to help the public become clearer about the values by which they live and the way those values implicate them in morally questionable or worse, morally reprehensible ways of living. And Brian, I have to say, I mean, let's be clear here. Mike Brown's death is not merely the result of some rogue criminal element on the Ferguson police force. His death is the result of the ways in which black men and women are always looked at, even before they're encountered, as criminals to, um, to be distanced from, uh, to be locked up, uh, or to be put down. And so part of what uh, the intellectual is able to do with their specialized knowledge is to help, I think, the public connect the particulars of the event, the death of Michael Brown, mm-hmm. to large 
larger trends and cultural practices. And when that is done, right, when that's done, I think, correctly, um, Michael Brown, you know, Eric Garner, John Crawford, who else? Ezell Ford, uh, Dante Parker, all of these, these, these young men, um, or all of these men, rather, who were killed by police officers no longer appear as random, isolated cases. And so the intellectual, I think, helps the public make connections they might not otherwise be able uh, to make if they simply focused on the particular case. So, so you know, I think it's, it's, it's very important for a journal like Theory and Event, typically seen as working in and, you know, with specialized languages to create a space to put the skills of intellectuals to work in the service of a wider public. And you state up front in your in your introduction that the essays are intellectual provocations, and and you know, a little of that came out in just what you were talking about. How important is it to not, like you say, use language that might uh, approach things in a different way, but it's to be provocative, to be upfront, and to address the issue head on in such an important topic. You know, when I said that in the in the introduction, mm-hmm. what I meant to signal to the reader. Uh, was that the essays are written to incite them, uh, to stimulate them to action. Whether that action comes in the form of uh, physical protest or picking up a pen to offer uh, their reflections uh, on the matter. My use of provocation goes back to um, uh, my earlier way of thinking, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the role of these essays is not meant to flatter the reader. It is not meant to make the reader feel good about the country in which uh, he or she lives. It is rather to get them to see how deeply flawed America is when it comes to attending to the lives of black and brown folks. The reader should, I hope, should feel deeply ashamed of this country because it consistently fails to live up to standards it otherwise claims to be committed to. And, you know, Brian, I I, want to go back, you know, I I just want to just back up a little bit Mm -hmm. because one of the things that I asked myself when Davide asked me to do this, you know, I asked myself, and this is related to sort of the role of uh, the intellectual in the public space. I asked myself, is there a way I can add value to the stream of uh, essays that were being uh, written about Mike Brown's death? Right. And there there are moments when we are confronted with an event Right? The cruelty of which is so intense, we cannot help but think about it constantly. And so for me, the, the issue was, you know, what led to Mike Brown's death, his body lying unattended to and uncared for in the summer heat? Right? Mm-hmm. It, what, what can be said uh, about this in terms of it being emblematic of a much larger practice in the United States? And so I asked myself, how could I understand Mike Brown's death and the way he died as part of 
a larger practice in which black life is seen as disposable. Is there a way, you know, to see his death not as a result of his pathology or the so-called pathology of black folks, which, as you probably know, the, the way these stories are often discussed, but to see his death as um, resulting from the pathology that is white supremacy. And I have to be very upfront about what is motivating me here. You know, now there are some uh, today who believe, for instance, that white supremacy is an antiquated term, that the United States has been, I guess, purified uh, <laughs> of white supremacy. And when I hear so scholars and pundits speak this way, I cannot help but think about uh, a line um, from James Baldwin. Uh, James Baldwin once said, I don't know if I'm going to get this correct, but he once said, I, th I think I'm getting this correct. He once said, no one, uh, no one is more dangerous than he who imagines himself pure in heart, for his purity by definition is unassailable. Mm -hmm. Right? They think that they're beyond, right. they're beyond question and that they're beyond critique. And so... For those who are open to the possibility that they might be wrong, I wanted to pull together a collection of essays that might help illuminate the landscape. And so when I use right, you know, when I use the language of white supremacy, which is the term that I just used, I don't mean white men running around in hoods. Right. right? I, yeah. I understood. Yeah. Right. You, there's an image, but you're talking about an attitude. Exactly. What I have in mind, exactly. What I have in mind is a comportment and a series of practices in which black life is valued less than white life. And, and Brian, let me be clear. This is on display daily. You pick your indicator. You pick your indicator. Whether we are talking about economic inequality, health disparities, inequality in access to, I don't know, good schools, or the ways in which black Americans are negatively exposed at alarming rates to the very law enforcement units meant to protect and serve, what we find ourselves talking about is the ways in which blacks are valued less than their white counterparts. I was reading in preparation for, you know, doing uh, this edition, mm -hmm. I was reading uh, an article by a news outlet ProPublica, basically it's kind of a uh, not-for-profit organization that does investigative journalism. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and they did this study that showed that young black males, young black males, are at a greater risk of being shot dead by the police than their white counterparts. And the number was something like 21 or 22 times greater. Wow. Right? And, and, and so in the face of that, right? Mm-hmm. One cannot sit idly by and not try uh, to offer reflections that can help the public uh, come to grips with what uh, American life amounts to for Black Americans. Mm -hmm. In in your uh, in your intro, you talk about that care and concern are the lifeblood. I think was the word you used of, of democratic life. How important is it to, with all the things you've said, and then to talk about that just human notion in, re, in con, the context of Mike Brown's death and, and everything that's happened in Ferguson? Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, um, 
You know, so I've been, you know, I've been thinking about this um, for a while now. And, you know, I said, you know, uh, earlier that, look, you, you pick whatever indicator you want to pick, health, economy, whatever. What we constantly see on display is racial inequality. And, and behind that is the practice of white supremacy. Some people would want to say, well, why do you see racial inequality when you look at all of these indicators? And one kind of answer would take you and I to the ways in which, for example, our policies are poorly structured, right? Mm -hmm. Or the way our laws seem to be uh, insufficiently attentive to how they unfairly affect different populations, right? Right. Now, this way of thinking suggests that, you know, if we come up with the right policies or better laws, this will take care of racial inequality. But what this kind of thinking fails to address, and I can't help but think this, I mean, what this kind of thinking fails to address is the root cause of the so-called poorly structured policies or bad laws. Mm -hmm. You know, Americans, and here I largely mean white, Americans are not rightly motivated in the first instance to articulate policies that would apply equally and fairly to black Americans. You know, um, and I, you know, look, if, you know, if we had more time, you know, I could spend sort of hours talking about this. So I'm moving, I'm moving a bit quickly, but the point is that to be rightly motivated, is to believe that those who will be affected by such policies and laws are deserving of your care and concern. And when you believe, when you hold that position, that they're deserving of your care and concern, you work harder to make sure those laws are rightly ordered, and when they turn out not to be, you work harder to fix them. Right. So to the extent that democratic governance is about ordinary, everyday individuals working together to achieve... Uh, a good in which uh, we all can participate, it requires, for instance, that I believe that you, Brian, are deserving of enjoying in that good in the first instance. Mm-hmm. If, I, if I don't believe that, then I will look for opportunities to exclude, or more tragically, I will act as if you are already excluded. That is, I won't even have you on my mind. Right. So my point is that institutions, laws, and policies must be measured by the degree of care and concern that underwrite them. And the way we get at that is by looking carefully at what those outcomes are and then reading back when we see disparities, reading back to find out, well, what is that history or what is that lack of motivation that helps explain this, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Look, it's a simple point, but what it amounts to is this. Why is it, after the landmark events of the civil rights movement and their impact on political and, I guess, legal institutions, we still encounter persistent racial inequality? The reason is that we assumed, and this is what we're confused by, Mm -hmm. we assumed that formal equality, the laws that are actually on the books, meant substantive equality. Right. Or to put it differently, we, we assumed that formal
Racial equality meant a full cultural and social embrace of racial equality and therefore an appropriate extension of care and concern to the lives of black folks. And we were simply wrong. So at the base of democratic life, what I'm trying to suggest there, are not its institutions or its laws, but whether ordinary everyday citizens are properly motivated to show care and concern for their fellows. Care and concern must be the basis upon which our institutions and laws rest. Because in the absence of care and concern, you get the death of Mike Brown and his body left unattended to mm -hmm. right, in the street. What did you learn from uh, the essays, the, the other authors that people either you've worked with or, or came across in this process? What did you learn? Because obviously you're, you have your point of view and what you're looking at, but by going through all these other people's works, it's got to help you see some different angles or maybe a, a, a kind of passion that you're glad to see out there. You know, Brian, I think, you know, it's a difficult question, right? I mean, um, it's a difficult question because we have a variety of essays, right, mm -hmm. in the issue. And it, it would, there's no way to sort of make a list mm -hmm. here. Um, I think my basic response is that I learned that we still, uh, however cliche it may sound, that we still have a long way to go in coming to grips with how deeply captured we are by white supremacy. Mm -hmm. right? Whether you are reading uh, Dora Appel and Patcha Markell in terms of the illusions under which we live that in fact shield us from the logic of how white supremacy works, or whether you're reading the essays by, by, by Tommy Curry and Veshla Weaver on the sort of the sort of cultural and institutional um, uh, uh, upshot of white supremacy, right? Mm -hmm. Or what reason? Um, I think the sort of radical responses um, by uh, Johnston and Glaude, right, mm -hmm. on how we ought to respond to this present moment. What unites all of them? even if they don't use this language, is this preoccupation with white supremacy, which amounts, again, to the ways in which um, our institutions, our laws and policies are underwritten by the belief right, mm -hmm. that black life is worth less uh, than white life. Well, Melvin, thank you for joining us today. This is such a, it's an important discussion to have not only in the journal, but then to extend it uh, in this means. And I hope these spark, this sparks lots more conversations and uh, we can talk about it without having a tragedy like this to wrap an issue around. Yeah, no, Brian, thank you very much. Um, and, you know, uh, you know, as I said to all of the contributors, um, let's try to add um, our voice um, to the cause. Exactly. Uh, and so that's, you know, that's ultimately why I think they all agree to join with me uh, in this volume. Thank you for listening to this Johns Hopkins University Press podcast. Please visit press.jhu.edu slash journals for more information.